So welcome everybody um, to you know, our Lagos large group gathering. And this is one of the opportunities for our church family to really be together and particularly in a season where there aren't as many opportunities for us to be in close proximity with each other. So in light of that, um, if you haven't already and if you do feel comfortable doing so, we wanna encourage as many of you as possible to turn on your cameras so that we can you know, just get this better sense of, of being all together and, and see one another. Um, I'm also told that we are recording this session. I, I see the recording light on, so I think that's good to go. So you're going to have access to this um, afterwards as well. Now, for anybody who's joining us um, more recently or who may be new to our Bible study here, uh, Logos here is a midweek Bible study, a ministry of Lighthouse Bible Church. And what we do is beforehand, we meet together in smaller discipleship groups to go through the exegesis of the passage that we'll be studying. And then we meet together um, as a larger group, and that's what we're doing here, um, to be able to share and also to hear from one of our elders or deacons uh, on the passage that we're studying. So for the past few months, we've been working our way through the book of First Timothy. And today we're going to be looking specifically at 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 15, on God's high calling for women. So um, to get us started today, um, JC, can I ask you to open us in a word of prayer? And I will also follow up and uh, pray after you. We'll get started with a word of prayer. Sure, Kevin. All right. Um, let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our creator who designed this world and made us for your glory. Uh, even though that your creation fell into sin, we are so thankful for the precious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, that proclaims his birth, his death on the cross, and his, and his resurrection. And even though, Lord, that he ascended to heaven, he never left us alone. Uh, we have his word. We have his word that stands forever. And we thank you for your spirit, whom you sent, who teaches us, who guides us, who comforts us, who counsels us, Lord. And Father, we are so thankful for this time that we can spend time in your word. May you please uh, help us uh, and open the eyes of our hearts by the power of your spirit to know your word and you know the individuals here who, who are listening. Uh, you know their hearts, what they're going through. And we just pray for them. We pray, we lift up here who, who needed to hear your word. And we thank you so much for uh, what you will do for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And Father God, we um, come before you and we thank you, Lord, um, just that we have your word. And even as we consider what we're doing as a church and how to go about church in a manner that is honoring to you, um, I'm just blown away by the fact that you give us guidance on, on, on these things. Where would we be, Lord, if it weren't for the wisdom of your word, uh, showing us how we ought to behave in the church, how we ought to act in the church, Lord, how things should be ordered um, within the church and um, how different people have different roles, Lord. So I just, um, we eagerly anticipate just uh, to learn from your word today, that we would understand what it, what your desire and what your design is. And Father, I just pray that as we hear these things, Lord, that our hearts would be submitted to it. And we know that uh, there are many things in your word that um, are countercultural, 
um, that are not in accordance with the doctrine of this world, Lord. But we also know that that's not what we're called to. We're not called to walk like the rest of the world do it does. We're called to, to walk um, in a different manner, in a manner that can shine the light, and in a manner that is like a city set on a hill, um, shining a light that can't be hid, Lord. So I just pray that as we follow your word as closely um, as we can, Lord, that we would be able to be a testimony, Lord, um, to a watching world, that we would be able to be a testimony, Lord, to even the people who we have in our own lives that uh, who are still in darkness, Lord, and need to hear your gospel. So, Father, thank you for that privilege. Um, thank you for the opportunity to sit under the teaching of your word tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned before, our, our passage for tonight is going to be 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. So, why don't we all turn to that passage, and uh, we can get started with our evening just reading the passage together. And um, uh, just to grab a little bit of um, the lead up into that passage, let's turn to the beginning of chapter 2. If we can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I'll give you all a few moments to turn there in your Bibles or, or find it um, on your computer. And then I can read for us 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, and let's read the first 15 verses there. And it says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm the telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So before we ask um, Garrett to lead our time, we have asked uh, members of Stephen's discipleship group and also Katrina's group to share a bit of what they learned from their study of this passage. So from Stephen's group, we have Will Wu sharing, and then from Katrina's group, we'll have Molly Chang sharing. So maybe uh, Will, we can have you go first, and Molly, if I can just ask you to be ready to, to go right after Will finishes. All right, Will, the, the floor is yours. Sounds good. Thank you, Kevin. Um, so yeah, I hope everyone's having a good week so far, and uh, it's almost Friday, and maybe some of us are looking forward to that, but... Um, anyway, so um, I'm going to share a little bit about what our group um, uh, went through when we did the exegesis together. 
Um, so this is in verse uh, 9 through 15 of First Timothy chapter 2. Um, so we uh, broke uh, the uh, this uh, passage down into four sections. And so the first section we had is verses 9 through 10, uh, which talks about God's high calling for women in his standard for physical and spiritual beauty. Um, we see that there is um, a command for how not only what women should physically put on, uh, which is uh, respectable and modest apparel, uh, but also we see uh, what uh, the standard for uh, what to spiritually put on as well, which is uh, good works. And I think um, one observation we made um, is actually in the first word of verse nine, uh, which is likewise. Um, and uh, likewise is an adverb. And in this context, it is a uh, conjunctive adverb. So that means that it's connecting the um, principle from the previous clause, um, which in this case is verse eight um, to, um, to verse nine. Um, so we read in verse eight, I desire that um, then that in every place, the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so we see that um, the, what's, what's translating over in terms of the principle is the heart behind um, which to obey these commands, right? So we see in verse eight um, that um, uh, there's a command for men to pray, um, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then we see in verse nine, there is a high calling for women to adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and, and self-control. Um, so we, um, we again see the heart behind those commands and that's um, what matters more than just, you know, mere external obedience. Um, and then the second section we had is, uh, and uh, we grouped verse 11 and 12 together, and that's God's high calling for women and showing submission and yielding to the authority of the men that God has appointed to lead in the church. Um, so we see that um, there are clear, again, like very clear imperatives here. Uh, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Um, and so I think, um, um, just like, um, uh, like the first word in verse 11 is like let, which is, uh, which is an imperative. Um, it's something that, um, should happen. Right. And I think another word that, uh, can be seen here is in the same verse, all submissiveness and all is a word that is absolute meaning that there is no, um, you know, excluding a condition or circumstance, um, and so um, I think one word that we also uh, needed to define, um, and that would uh, be the probably a big difference between you know heresy and and truth is uh, the word uh, quietly quiet. Um, and the NASB I think they use the word silence. Um, and so what exactly um, what exactly is the definition of that? And I think um, when we read earlier in chapter two verse two for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Uh, we do see the word quiet again being used there as well. And, um, and quiet um, in this, the word in this context translates to um, being peaceable without contention. So that's a very big difference than um, quiet in the context of like being like verbally uh, like verbally quiet or verbally silent. Um, so again, that kind of illustrates the, the heart in which um, uh, women are called to um, 
obey um, obey this command of submission and to yield to the authority of the men that God has appointed um, in, in the church. Um, and then uh, we move on to verse 13 and 14, uh, which describes the reasons for God's recognition of male authority in the church. Um, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Um, so again, like the first word in verse 13 is for, which is in this case, a conjunction, which connects the idea from the previous clause um, to the current verse. Um, so we just, um, we just finished with um, like uh, the high calling for women to, um, to not teach and to not exercise authority over man. And in verse 13 and 14, God um, gives us the reasons for uh, why there's this recognition of male authority uh, in the church. And we uh, cross-referenced uh, to the creation account in Genesis um, where we see the order of creation um, specifically in Genesis 2, 16, 17, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, and um, we see this command uh, given to Adam. And uh, um, if you read further down, like Eve was, Eve hadn't existed yet. Like Eve was formed uh, later, uh, I believe uh, near the end of the chapter. And um, we never see God explicitly give Eve this command. And what we see in chapter three is when Eve is talking to the serpent, she is aware of this command. She knows of this command to not eat of the um, eat of eat of that uh, fruit from that tree, and so we um, we see that um, because Eve is aware of that, and God originally like gave this command to Adam, um, like God or Adam received his command and his authority from God, um, and therefore Eve implicitly should have received um, this command from from Adam. Um, so that's like the first reason for male authority, um, in the churches because of the order of creation and, um, in which God gave, um, that specific command to back in the, um, in the creation account. Um, the second reason was the difference in sin, um, between Adam and Eve, um, which is connected to the difference in authority. Um, so while we see that Eve, like sin first, um, the Bible never blames Eve for the fall of the human race, um. There's a cross-reference in Romans 5.12 that through one man, uh, sin enter the world. Um, so we see that um, Adam is held responsible. And the reason for this is because there's a difference in authority between Adam and Eve. Um, Adam had an authority that Eve did not have. Therefore, uh, he also had a responsibility that he did not have. Um, and and um, the last section we have is by calling for how a woman of faith should... Um, live in light of the stigma from Eve. Um, and I think uh, there, there was a couple of things we looked at here. I think one thing that we, our group wanted to define was how the word uh, saved was defined here. And again, that would you know be a big difference between heresy and, and the truth. And so um, um, I think I'm quoting directly from the MacArthur um, study guide, which is that saved in this context translates to will be preserved. Um, the Greek word can also mean to rescue, to heal, or to deliver from. Um, so Paul is not advocating that women are eternally saved from sin through childbearing or that they maintain their salvation by having babies, 
uh, both of which are clear contradictions in regards to the doctrine of salvation. Um, but Paul is teaching that even though a woman bears a stigma of being the initial instrument who led the race into sin, women may be preserved or freed from that stigma by raising a generation of uh, godly children. Um, yeah, and that's uh, some of the highlights from uh, what our group discussed. Um, yeah. I'm just gonna hop on next. <laughs> um, hey everyone, I'm Molly. I'm in Katrina's discipleship group. Um, part of the context of this passage is that the women in the church were copying the culture around them. So they were drawing attention to their wealth and their beauty. But what's important in God's eyes is our preparation for worship. So, you know, just consider in our own lives, like how are our hearts? Are we ready to worship the Lord or are we thinking of ourselves? First um, Samuel 16, seven says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you know, our Lord is a good and powerful God. He knows what's best for us as, as what's laid out in his word. Great, thank you, Molly. And thank you, Will, uh, for sharing uh, some points of what uh, you guys discussed in your group. So um, with that, Garrett, I'm going to turn it over to you um, and you can take us uh, through the next portion of our evening tonight. Awesome. Well, thanks, Will. Thanks, Molly and Kevin for um, sharing and um, yeah, happy to be with you all this evening and to study God's word together. Um, you know, I just want to say a couple things beforehand and, and Kevin, uh, you know, prayed in, in this way was um, there are, 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 you know, as we heard from Will in his sharing, there's a lot of things here that are, um, you know, contrary to like maybe what our current uh, culture will, will say or, or preach really. Um, there's uh, the modern, uh, you know, religion really is, is contrary to um, what we see here in God's word. And it's a challenge for us all to, uh, to consider um, what authority uh, the word of God has. Do we, do we take, take God's word as, as authoritative, as as inerrant, as uh, something that we should uh, trust and depend on and um, view as, um, you know, the ultimate standard of what is true and uh, good and right? Um, or are we going to kind of push that aside for, um, you know, other, other doctrines that the, the world teaches us? Um, it's also not something to be uh, just uh, kind of kind of taken like with grumbling or uh, hesitancy. Um, like God's word is, is to be embraced and and cherished and um, something we can stake our our lives on and and really trust, knowing that it that it's good. Um, so, so as we, we come to this passage, I want to remind us all that these are truths that, that are actually like beautiful things. And because they come from a God who, who is perfect and holy 
and righteous and only does what is good. And um, his, his character uh, comes through in, in his word. And so, or is, is, is reflected here um, in what he says. And so, you know, as we, as we dive in, I want to keep that in mind. And, and let me just uh, share my screen here. I can. Oh, once I get access for whoever needs to give that, me that, that'd be great. You should be good to go. Cool. All right. Are we good? All right. So, uh, God's high calling for women from 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 9 through 15. I'm just going to read that passage one more time, and then we'll kind of just walk through it and, and do like the, the exegesis from it, um, walk through the context, context and uh, try and capture what uh, God's will is in this passage. So starting in verse 9, likewise that, all, that women should adorn the, themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, what, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So uh, just diving in and, and reminding us all of, of the context that well, we've seen, um, you know, in this passage, you know, as we've gone through in the past, um, we read chapter one, right, um, and we see that the that this was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, um, and uh, the occasion, the setting that this is, this is kind of taking place in is as as the apostolic age kind of comes to a close, right? This is post uh, resurrection, post ascension. Jesus has has completed his earthly ministry. And has and has left his apostles there um, to carry on, carry out the great commission. And though that group of apostles is is kind of dying, and and their ministry is coming to a close, how are they to pass on this uh, word that Christ has given to them to the next generation? And how are they to continue on the mission of the church? Um, and that's the setting that we kind of find out find ourselves in with, uh, you know, false teaching creeping its way into the church, and Paul is passing the baton down to Timothy now uh, in, in 1 Timothy. You know, some of the, some of the key ideas and, and phrases that you'll see throughout the passage are concepts like adorning, you know, in, in dress, um, teaching, you know, should, should definitely have picked up on the, the repeated word of women, um, the idea of godliness is a key concept, really, in, in the whole book of 1 Timothy. Um, quiet, uh, 
which which even Will referenced earlier that had been mentioned a couple times. Um, and then you see, you know, this focus on Adam and Eve in in the latter section of this passage. Uh, but just walking through what we've seen so far um, within, um, you know, the what we've studied, uh, you know, Paul's writing to, to Timothy. He's left Timothy there in Ephesus uh, while pa Paul has departed to, to Macedonia. And, and he's left Timothy there to, to shepherd and care for the flock. In, in chapter one, verse three, uh, we see that uh, Paul's, Paul's there or Paul is urging Timothy to remain at Ephesus so he may charge certain persons not to teach any a different doctrine. And then as we, we go through the rest of uh, this passage, verses five through 11, uh, this problem that has arisen in the church, uh, and we see that Jesus is the, is the one who, who he actually cares about how his, his word is handled uh, within the church. And we see this description of uh, how these false teachers were, were mishandling uh, the word of God. Then in, in the rest of the chapter, in chapter one, um, we see the remedy for uh, this, this false teaching, which is uh, the true gospel and, and Christ caring for his church through uh, the true gospel that he's given. And, and Paul kind of gives his testimony that he's received uh, this charge from the Lord. He realizes that you know, Christ has come into his own life, uh, graciously bestowed salvation upon him, uh, not by any works he has done. It wasn't by his own merit, but it was by the sovereign grace of Christ that came into his life. Um, and, now, and now Paul passes this, this on to Timothy. Paul, Paul had been appointed to uh, Christ's service, and, and now he, he urges Timothy to then uh, wage the good warfare. He, there's this, this battle for the gospel, and, and Timothy must uh, stand firm in that, um, you know, confronting those who, who were, would stray from, uh, from that true message that had been passed down uh, from, from Christ to Paul and now to Timothy. And then as we get to chapter 2, uh, we, re we realize that this battle for the gospel is not just fought in, in, in the teaching of the church, uh, but it's a, both a matter of, of doctrine like and practice. Christ cares about how the church is uh, actually worshiping. Like the whole of the church is both its teaching and its, and its practice, right? These implications of the gospel that are to be lived out in the church. And what, what Paul addresses here um, at the beginning of chapter two is that these, this prayer for the lost especially even those who are in positions of power is to be like an important aspect of, of the church's worship. And this is, this is because God is a God who desires the salvation of all men, like um, Jew and, and Gentile, um, those who are in power, those who are not. Um, God is the God of salvation for all people. And there is a one mediator uh, for salvation, which is uh, his son, Jesus Christ. He's the one mediator between God and men. And men are particularly supposed to lead the way uh, in this prayer. So uh, that brings us to, to verse eight, where it says that the men are to, to pray lifting holy hands. 
right, without anger or quarreling. And that brings us then uh, to verse nine, and that's where we'll start um, here uh, this evening. So the first, uh, first kind of outline, like point in the outline um, is that uh, the gospel is uh, protected and displayed by properly ordered appearance. And, and this should, should be clear, but as Will um, pointed out earlier in his in sharing time, um, the first thing we see is that word likewise. And uh, that's connecting the following thoughts that come in, in verses nine and 10 back to what he had just shared. So, so just as the man uh, had this calling to pray, now we have instruction uh, for how women are to behave in the church. Uh, the men were to pray because the gospel had reshaped their lives. And now women are have this call to uh, dress modestly, adorn themselves in good works, uh, be known for their godliness um, as an expression of the work that Christ has, has done in them. And that command that we see in verse nine, women are to adorn themselves uh, in respectable apparel. This Greek, uh, the Greek word here for adorn, it means uh, to put in order uh, or to, uh, to arrange, to make ready, uh, to prepare. And, and so there's an implication here that there's an intentionality about the way that women are to dress, particularly uh, within the church context. It's not something that we uh, take lightly or just haphazardly. There's, there's careful attention given. Um, it, it, it does matter. It, it's something that makes an impact. So we do so orderly and um, with intentionally and, and properly. Um, this is, is, is tied to like your gospel profession. If you claim to be a Christian, then your dress should be properly ordered according uh, to that confession. It, it's, it's putting on display like the reality of what, what Christ has, has done in your life. So, you know, even, and even as, as Molly shared earlier, it's like, what, what are you putting on display when you come to church to worship God, right? Um, does the manner in which uh, you, you've ordered your clothing, does it reflect a, a changed heart, uh, a, trans, a life that's been transformed by Christ? Uh, does, does your dress point to his grace and mercy in your life or does it, does it draw attention to yourself? You know, we think of, think of weddings um, where, where the purpose is, is to gather together to celebrate uh, the work that, that God has done in, in the um, bringing together the husband and the wife. And you can imagine just uh, a, a guest of the wedding, um, you know, showing up with, uh, you know, wearing a wedding dress or, or something that would be, you know, very inappropriate in that setting that they would want to draw attention to themselves rather than the reason we've all gathered together there. Um, and, and so in the church, the worship is about Christ, right? Um, and, and so how are women to show that this, this service is not about them, uh, but it's about Christ. 
and that's that applies to their the whole of their life that their whole life is to be submitted to christ is to to draw attention to him and not to themselves and how do we do how do they do this well it's through putting on respectable apparel uh, with modesty and self-control the nasb translates this word um, uh, respectable as as proper um, it's actually derived from the same word as adorn so there's this this actually continued emphasis on on orderliness um, is something that is uh, it's decent it, it's put in order right the the opposite of of chaotic and it's contrasted here with uh, this this prohibition uh, for uh, you know, gold, braided hair, pearls, costly attire. Uh, so there's this clear distinction between the type of clothing that's proper for women who profess Christ and, and clothing that's not. Right? So in, the, in this context, a woman shouldn't be dressed in order to draw attention to herself. So braided hair, gold, and pearls, these were all things that um, women in the day would even like weave into their hair. Uh, they would have all sorts of jewels and gold strands, costly things that they owned would be you know, woven into their hair. And the purpose of this was uh, to even flaunt, the, flaunt their wealth, uh, just to show everyone how much they owned. Uh, so you can imagine just walking into like a, a church service with, you know, all your wealth just, you know, on your body, um, you know, kind of on display for everyone to see. Um, really, they're just to attract attention. And this is, you know, a particular application in this time um, because that's what was kind of ostentatious then. Um, we might not see like a simple braid as something that is um, you know, meant to draw attention to yourself, but um, we can think of many things today that would, you know, kind of signal like, hey, I'm trying to get attention, right? So we have to ask ourselves, um, and the, the ladies in particular, what is it about your dress or, or the way you're presenting yourself that is drawing too much attention to you, right? Um, whether it's, uh, you know, the length of your skirt or dress or the way that your clothes fit um or are you really just you know decked out head to toe in a way that you know flaunts your wealth and, and is meant to be showy uh, this isn't this isn't uh meant to say that there's uh, no room for dressing well or with style uh but it's you know taking care and order ordering your your apparel in a way that is consistent with your profession of godliness and the work that Christ has done in you. And so that you want to glorify him in, in all that you do. Uh, you know, our culture isn't, isn't going to say this. Uh, our, our culture wants kind of the exact opposite, you know, telling you that it's, it's empowering to do, whatever you want, that, you know, someone who 
goes into um, a setting and dressing quite inappropriately is actually, you know, um, you know, strong because of it, or is, you know, paving her own way and, and, and um, you know, empowered by that. But this is really um, like objectification and enslavement to, um, to your, oneself and to self-satisfaction and to self-endorsement um, and, and promotion rather than promoting uh, our savior, uh, the one who uh, has bought us with a price. And so um, true freedom is, is found in living out this high calling of being a woman who follows Christ. That's where the satisfaction is found in following his design, right? not the world's standards. So moving on, that respectable apparel is, is kind of um, modified with, with modesty and self-control. Like this is actually attitudes of the heart. Right, and we see this also in in First Peter three, uh, verses three through four. Uh, he's he writes there that not to let your adorning be external, right? the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable be- imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious, right? So again, this isn't a, a legalistic thing where we're, we're trying to earn points with God because we dress a certain way. It's a, it's a transformation that's taken place from the inside and, and then it's showing itself in the way uh, that women dress. So just like Peter is in, in 1 Peter 3, uh, Paul's calling the women of the church to a humble attitude in their attire it's an attitude that, that doesn't desire to have the spotlight or attention. Uh, and that word modesty is, is it, it kind of has this connotation of, of, of shame even. Um, so we understand that um, people who, who dress immodestly, who just you know, they may be walking down the street wearing something just wild and, and flamboyant and loud and or, or completely inappropriate, we're like, oh my gosh, like that person has no shame, right? We kind of, uh, we can't believe it because shouldn't they have like the, the shame to, to, to wear something differently? Um, it's because modesty, no self-control. And ultimately modesty and self-control are, are heart attitudes that, that come from uh, the work of the spirit in your life. Because God has done a mighty act, right, bringing you from death to life, right, uniting you to Christ, your heart's changed. It doesn't seek yourself. It doesn't seek to promote yourself any longer, but it's, it's humble. Um, it's, it's modest, not, not wanting anyone to sin, not wanting anyone to stumble. And so that, that attention shifts from yourself uh, to Christ. So again, like, is Christ's lordship, you know, controlling 
all aspects of your life. Is Christ Lord over the way we dress? Is, are, are you promoting yourself or are you promoting Christ? All right, and moving on, you know, we see that the adornment that women are, are to put on is not just limited to respectable apparel. Right? It's not only just about the clothes we, that you wear. Verse 10 says that women are to are, uh, adorn themselves with what is proper for, for women who profess godliness. Uh, and that's with good works. And this is, the, this is the testimony of everyone who's been saved by Christ, you know, that uh, we've been saved by faith, uh, by grace through faith. And the result of that is good works, right? Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 10, that salvation is by the mercy of God, uh, but it results in the good works that God has created uh, for us to walk in. That's what James teaches when he says that, that faith without works is dead. Therefore, it's, it's proper for women who profess godliness uh, to be known for their good works. This is, the, this is the properly ordered life where your confession and your life match up, right? And Paul is, is clear in this letter to Timothy that both your life and your doctrine matter, right? It's not enough to just have a, a, a technically correct doctrine and it's not enough to just live well. These, these are connected ideas. We can't divorce the two. And the, this profession of, of godliness, this is a, a major theme, right, in, in 1 Timothy. It, it's godliness is behavior that demonstrates your faith in God, right? And in, in throughout this book, we see Paul uh, bring up this theme of godliness. And, and even earlier in chapter two, it says we're, we're called to pray, you know, for all people that so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and, and dignified in every way. In, in in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that, uh, he says, great indeed we confess is this mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to like share these fundamental truths about who Christ is. So that the idea of godliness is tied closely towards this orthodox doctrine of Christ that the church is there to guard and protect. In, in chapter 4, verse 7, he, he urges Timothy to train himself for godliness. And in chapter 6, verse 3, he, he warns against those who teach things that uh, do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, right? Again, that connection, there's a, a, a link between proper teaching and godly living. And Paul um, doesn't uh, separate the two. So this profession of, of godliness in, in chapter 2, verse 10, saying if you're professing godliness, if you're professing the truth about Christ, uh, that the gospel has come in and changed your life, it needs to be evident by the works that you do. You're not to be just adorned with uh, flashy clothes that draw attention to yourself, uh, all the glory coming to you. Right? You are supposed to be uh, displaying the work that Christ has done in you 
and the beauty of who Christ is by the good works that you do. It's not something that saves you. It's a result of your salvation. It's a result of the work of the spirit in your heart, uh, bringing you from death to life. And so the, the way that women dress, attitude of their hearts, the good works that they do shouldn't point to themselves, should put God on center stage, magnifying him in his holiness and his gospel. Now, moving on to like the second portion of uh, this passage, you know, looking at verses 11 and 12, Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So this kind of second aspect, the second heading, uh, calling the gospel being displayed and protected through properly ordered teaching and leadership. So we see that the gospel is put on display both through uh, this attitude of a modesty in dress and in in humility in their hearts for for women and their good works they're putting on display. Um, secondly, also, you know, in the the teaching and leadership of the church, specifically relating to to the women. Um, two uh, in these two verses, there's uh, one kind of positive command and, and one prohibition. Uh, and that positive command is to let a, a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So it should be clear that women are to learn. Like a lot of times we may read this passage and immediately kind of like the words submissiveness and quiet and not, I do not permit a woman to teach or like maybe jump off the page a bit, but we should recognize that uh, Paul promotes uh, the idea that women are to be learners. Like they are fellow image bearers of God, um, you know, equal in dignity, equal in value, in worth, and they're to be discipled in the truth of God's word. They are to be taught. They are to be mentored. They are to be built up. They're to be encouraged. And uh, this isn't something that's just, you know, this uh, kind of relic, antiquated, you know, uh, only something that was relevant for, uh, for Paul and Timothy's culture. Um, this was actually something that was countercultural. Um, women weren't typically very highly esteemed. They weren't allowed in prominent places in the temple. They weren't necessarily allowed access to education and teaching. But Paul is, is affirming here what, what Jesus affirmed and what had been true since uh, the creation that women are valuable disciples made in the image of God. And, and we see this kind of throughout the scriptures demonstrated. Uh, you know, reading a, a quote from, from John MacArthur on this, he says, uh, in no way are women treated as spiritual inferiors. The first person Jesus revealed his messiahship to was a woman. Uh, Jesus healed women. Uh, in contrast to the prevailing practice of the rabbis, he taught women. Uh, women ministered to Jesus and the disciples. Following his resurrection, Jesus appeared first to a woman. 
Women and men were invited to early church prayer services. Men and women are to be granted honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. The fruit of the spirit is for both men and women. And in short, you know, he closes, he says, all the promises, commands, and blessing of the New Testament apply equally to women and men. So women are, are to be learners, right? They're, they're to be serious students of the scriptures. So I encourage you to, to study theology, read your Bible, memorize it, listen to it, meditate on it, invest yourselves in studying God's word. Um, read Christian books. Um, read about all there is to know about who Christ is, about a doctrine, about um, counseling. Read about the whole counsel of God and be true students of his word. And when you can have a greater understanding of the whole counsel of God, you'll be better equipped to live out your God-ordained role as, roles as, as wives, as, as mothers, as helpers, and servants. But Paul is clear in verse 11 that women are to learn, but the manner in which they're to do so is to be done quietly with all submissiveness. You know, the emphasis here is that the teaching that women receive is to be met with humility, with submission to the leadership that God's placed in the church, namely the, the elders of the church. Right? We see that the, the elders of the church are to be the ones who teach. And, and, and that's clear even in this book, uh, as you know, Paul tells Timothy in, in the very next chapter, that the elders are to be the ones who are the, the qual they should, are to be qualified to teach, able to teach. And Paul gives all sorts of um, instruction to Timothy about the importance of the teaching, to guard the teaching, um, and to protect it, and to, to, for him, Timothy himself, to teach uh, what is true. So teaching even in itself is a huge theme within 1 Timothy. And later on, uh, you know, as we continue to study this um, in 1 Timothy, we'll see that the authority that God has given, uh, you know, he's given that authority to the office of elders, qualified men. And we see here in verse 11 that uh, women are to respect the authority that uh, God has placed over them. They're not to revolt. They're not to, to lead a charge against the teachers in the public gathering. Uh, you know, as, as they're taught, as women receive instruction, uh, they're poured into by, by faithful shepherds, given to them uh, by God as a gift. And as they do this, they, they reflect the gospel through properly receiving that teaching quietly uh, with submissiveness, uh, not with hardened hearts or uh, with, with grumbling or, or um, you know, kind of like accusation in their responses, but submissively. And this is, this is fitting for a woman who trusts in the word of the Lord, right? Oftentimes in our culture, we hear that submission and it kind of like grates against us 
But for a woman who fears the Lord, she embraces this. She knows that God's will is, is what's best for her life. And, and so trusting the Lord in this area leads her to spiritual growth, uh, to sanctification and satisfaction in Christ. So again, like, as I mentioned earlier, kind of at the beginning, this isn't something that is to just be accepted uh, begrudgingly um, and, and to kind of like, uh, like, uh, I guess, like, I guess God says that, so I'll believe it. Um, just uh, resenting it in our hearts. Right? We should be, should be thankful uh, for this revelation that God's given to us. Right? We should embrace it and knowing that it's, it's God's design for men and women. Right? We should submit our hearts to the lordship of Christ in this area and knowing that he's our master, uh, but he is our father who loves us and, and cares for us. He, uh, the church, it's the, the bride of Christ. He cares deeply for his bride, right? Ephesians 5, he nourishes and cherishes his bride. So we shouldn't be so uh, bold or, or audacious to believe that we can come in and then mess around with God's design for his church and think that we know better, uh, that we have a, actually a better plan. We know this, this better way uh, than you, Jesus, to kind of pro properly order your church. You know, what you said, that's, kind of old school, outdated, we have a, a better idea for how to take care of your church and how to build it up. No, not at all. Christ knows what is best and he's given uh, that clear command to us. So women, to learn quietly uh, with all submissiveness. And then we get to, to verse 12. Uh, Paul's elaborating on this. Right? He's, he's building upon this idea of learning quietly with all submissiveness. And he says very clearly that women are not permitted to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So he's stating plainly, clearly, women are uh, to keep quiet in a sense that they're not to teach, right? Their submissiveness is demonstrated by uh, not grasping hold of these authoritative teaching roles in the church. Right. These are reserved for the men, uh, but not just any man. You can't just put anyone up there. It's for qualified godly men. And we'll see that um, as we get into chapter three. Um, it's also you know, important to note that uh, the verb tense here, even in um, to teach, uh, the, maybe the most literal translation of it is actually uh, do not permit a woman to be a teacher. So Paul is saying that it's not the proper role of a woman to be a teacher in the assembly of the church. Very clearly, the role of, of the pastor or the elder is not one that the women in the church are to assume. And wh why is that? Why can't women be pastors or elders? It's because the teaching and the exercising of authority is what elders and pastors do, right? This is the function of the leadership of the church. Elders are 
are under shepherds of Christ. They have an authority that's been delegated to them by Christ to teach his word and to shepherd the flock of God among them. And it's, and it's to be carried out by faithful men, not by women. So again, we're not saying that they're or placing any like lesser value on or worth on women. It's a, it's a matter of, of role and function. It's, it's not a matter of, of value or, or dignity at all. Now we can see this actually in, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 3. So if you turn real quick there, if you, if you have your Bibles or, or flip on your phone over to, to 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul writes there, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So very clearly, uh, this passage lays out you know, authority and submission roles between man and Christ, a woman and her husband, and as well as this dynamic between the son and the father. He says the head of Christ is God. So if we're going down the, this path of equating submission with diminished worth or value, uh, this is going to mess up our, our, our understanding of the Trinity. It's going to have hazardous implications for our view of the Godhead. Though we absolutely assert the equality of the Father and the Son, right? Uh, they're they're co-equal. They sit. They share the same divine essence. That one is not less God. Yet they have different roles and, and functions. So it is with wives and husbands, and then this carries over into the life of the church, where God has ordained that qualified men be the leaders while women are to remain quiet, not exercising authority over the men. So women are equal in, uh, to men in, in value and dignity as image bearers of God created um, in, in equality, yet this equality in, in worth doesn't translate necessarily to equality in function and or role. So, so although we clearly see that uh, Paul's limiting the teaching in the church to men, uh, we, we also know from elsewhere in the Bible that there is a proper role for women in teaching. Um, so can a woman, a woman never ever teach ever? No, that's not true. That's not uh, the New Testament's uh, perspective on this. If we turn over to Titus chapter two and look at verse three, you know, this is again where Paul is writing to, to Titus um, to uh, put his church in order, what remained in, in Crete. And he's, and he's giving instructions to uh, the, the women there. And he says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, 
and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So there is this uh, proper context where women are to be teachers. And that's when older women are teaching younger women, right? And they're called to teach their children. And you even see that in, in maybe how, how um, Timothy grew up, right? Women playing a prominent role in his life. Um, you know, Paul takes joy in, in the fact that the faith that dwelt in Timothy's, his mother and his grandmother, uh, you know, was passed on to Timothy. We can see that in the second Timothy. That's why it's important for women to be students of the word, right? You need to be equipped in the word so you can pass that on to, to other women and to children. And you don't just pass on your own um, wisdom or your, your own intellect or, or what you've gained from what the world says, but you pass on God's wisdom. So we've seen now that uh, the gospel, it's put on display, it's protected not just through uh, the way um, our appearance and dress are ordered, but also through this properly ordered teaching and leadership within the church. And now as we get to um, you know, these last three verses in the, in the passage, verses 13 through 15, Paul is going to kind of conclude this thought with the theological foundation that undergirds all of this. So I'll go to the next slide. Uh, the gospel being proclaimed and protected uh, by God's original design. So many times, you know, we, we talked about this earlier. Isn't, isn't what Paul is saying here just outdated? How do we know that uh, this isn't something that he was just talking about for back then? Um, you know, Paul lived in a patriarchal society. Um, isn't that just for that era? Well, verses 13 through 15 provide a pretty clear rebuttal of this argument. Um, and in verse 13, he's grounding his argument not in societal norms of the time, but in biblical history and in God's design. Right? He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he's bringing us back to the very beginning. You know, you know um, Will referenced this as, in it, as he was sharing, back to Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve are created by God. And he specifically points to this order of creation as the sign of priority of male leadership, both in this relation of the husband and wife, as well as even the leadership of the church. And this is, this is Paul speaking with apostolic authority, bringing Genesis 1 and 2 to bear on the current situation in Ephesus. So he's showing that the creation of Adam and Eve says something about uh, the structure of the family, about the structure of the church that should be reflected in every society and every culture for all time. There's, there's nothing more like kind of basic and than, than the creation account, right? That has applies to, to any culture. The next kind of attack on this would be, not only is this something that's 
uh, only for you know past cultures, but uh, isn't this uh, role of authority and submission isn't that just a result of the fall? Uh, it's this this claim that everything was kind of this in this egalitarian state at the beginning, and then sin enters the world, and now we have this imbalance in gender roles. Uh, but if we just follow the argument here uh, in First Timothy two, it's it's clear that the order was built into these relationships prior to the fall. It, it goes back into the very order in which uh, Adam and Eve are, are created. This is also the argument from First uh, Corinthians eleven, and and we read from that earlier. Right, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And even when we look over in in Ephesians five, what we last year, right, Paul's connecting this marriage covenant that's inherent in God's design. Uh, he's making it a picture. Uh, of, or he's saying it, it is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So from the very beginning, there's an image of the gospel woven into the very fabric of creation that, that men's and women's roles and in their specific, even in their coming together as husband and wife is, is an, an image of, that points forward to the gospel um, this relationship between Christ and his church. So they've always been meant uh, to paint a picture of the gospel. And this is why there's so much emphasis here in 1 Timothy 2 uh, to women properly abiding by their God-given role. It, it's because it, it's a reflection of the gospel. And when we veer off the course that God's charted out for us, we do damage to the witness of the true gospel in the church. And that's even, in, there's even an example here in, in verse 14, where Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This isn't saying something like, uh, oh, women are just more gullible and open to deception because they're not as clever or intelligent or something like that. But rather um, saying this, this event, uh, the fall where sin enters into the world happens as God or as Adam uh, leaves his role and Eve subverts her own role that God had ordained for her and, and takes on this position of leadership. Adam should have been the protector and the shepherd, yet he fails to take responsibility and Eve's deceived. So the purpose of uh, Paul including this verse is to show what happens when these proper roles are reversed, especially in light of verse 13, which roots these roles in the create, creation order. So even, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of time, you know, talking about women's roles. Um, this, is, this is also a, a call to the men to be leading our homes, right? To be uh, protecting our wives, to be nourishing them, uh, with the word, to be praying for them, setting an example for them. Uh, we're to be you know, disciplining our children, um, instructing them in the, in the ways of the Lord. And the men of the church are called to lead. It, we need to um, step up 
um, to mature in godliness, uh, to become, uh, you know, students of the word that we can handle his word properly and we are uh, no sound doctrine and, and our lives reflect it. And we then take on the leadership of the church. And when there's a void there, the women are gonna be tempted to, to fill that role, which is not uh, ordained for them by God. And so women or, or the men, we need to embrace uh, this calling to godliness, to holiness and to maturity and to be the type of men that uh, people want to follow after. As we, if we move into verse 15, uh, we, you know, sins entered the world. Uh, it's a result of the, the fall and the woman's become a transgressor in verse 14. But in verse 15, Paul provides this, this gospel hope um, for us. He writes, uh, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You know, this can seem maybe somewhat, somewhat confusing at first. Uh, what, what are we to, what are we to take a, uh, save through childbearing? What does that mean? Uh, you know, first of all, we have to uh, observe that Paul cannot mean that we have some sort of salvific merit achieved through having children, that we are justified, made right in God's sight, um, through having a, a child, right? The only way for salvation is uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's for all people. And this doctrine is explicit throughout the New Testament. But as we consider kind of the context and the grammar in this passage, we realize that there's this flow of thought that's been happening, right? Uh, going straight through Genesis 1 through 3, from the, the, the creation order, right? Adam being formed first and then Eve, then to the, the fall. And so with, with Genesis, uh, our, our minds should be in Genesis 1 through 3. What happens after the fall in Genesis 1 through 3? We get this this promise of salvation, that, that early glimpse of the Savior that's to come in, in Genesis 3.15, where the Lord says to Satan, I will put enemy, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from this passage, we see that the, the offspring of the woman, Eve, will ultimately uh, defeat this, this serpent. Right? Though his heel uh, is bruised and he, he suffers, the head of the serpent is crushed. Right? Salvation is announced that will come through uh, this child to be born uh, by the seed of the woman. And we know that that's ultimately you know, coming through Christ. So the, though Eve has, has abandoned uh, her role as a woman, she, she's fallen into sin 
by taking over this authority in the, in the marriage relationship, she ultimately brings salvation into, into the world uh, by recapturing her God-given role. And this, this is a salvation that comes through Christ for those who continue on in faith, in, in love, in holiness, with self-control. Who, who exercises th these qualities, right? Faith, love, holiness, self-control. These are people who have been born of the Spirit. And, and these are the fruit of the Spirit working out in a woman's heart. And, and it's evidence of, of true abiding and, and saving faith. These qualities have been mentioned before in, in 1 Timothy. All the way back in, in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure conscience or from a pure heart, rather, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul had been radically changed by God. Christ had come into his life and shown him grace and mercy. And the Spirit's working in his life to produce these qualities that were motivating his gospel ministry. And these now are the same exact characteristics that are going to be present in the life of a woman who's experienced that same salvation that Paul had, that he testifies to um, in the, at the end of chapter one. So the, there's, there's a principle that we can take away here from, uh, from these verses is that there's danger in stepping away from the God-ordained roles for women. And when we, we operate outside of these boundaries, that the Lord set for us, more open to deception, falling into the schemes of, of the devil. And, you know, I know that that's probably uh, a temptation for, for many uh, of you ladies, maybe especially here, like in Silicon Valley, where um, you're essentially told, like, you're not valuable unless you... Uh, you know, are successful in your career. You know, when, and I hear all the time at, at work, um, you know, if a, if a woman decides to, to leave her, her job and, you know, embrace her, her family and be a, a worker at home, like she's uh, giving something away that is more valuable, that uh, wasting like her, her full potential. And uh, those who, who kind of chase after climbing the corporate ladder are, are seen as powerful and, and strong. But this is, <laughs> couldn't be any more of a lie. Um, you know, we're, we're told that if women that men do, then you're not reaching your, your full potential. But the message that that sends is that your full, full potential is to, to just be a man. And this is a incredibly low view of the potential that, that God's designed for women to embrace and to take hold of. So as we wrap up, um, you know, what is, what is Paul's intent here? Uh, what is he... What is he after? And what's the main message of this passage? It's that the church guards and displays the gospel 
through orderly public worship, specifically by having women dress modestly, modestly, learn quietly, submit to male leadership and teaching. Well, disordered conduct and teaching is an attack on the gospel. Submission to God's created order upholds and proclaims the gospel. So just in closing, um, just urge you women, ladies, uh, to not uh, buy into the lies that are in the world telling you that submission to your husband or to the church is teaching, it, it's degrading. Those are um, satanic lies, right? Don't buy into those. Instead, uh, just place your trust in the Lord. Um, realize that uh, the truth of the scripture is that uh, women are indispensable in God's economy. And, um, you know, the calling for women to submit to the, to the word of the Lord uh, in this area is something to be just embraced with all your hearts. Adorn yourself with the gospel. Adorn yourself with modesty, uh, with self-control, with good works, and, and to live godly lives that, um, that reflect the work that he's doing in your hearts. Uh, this is uh, God's high calling for your life. Uh, it's something to be cherished, uh, to be valued and, and praise, worthy of praise, um, to raise up children in the Lord, to love your husband. Um, these are precious in God's sight. And it's what um, our savior values um, and has called uh, women to. So, uh, you know, we pray to this end that uh, Christ would be magnified in our church here at Lighthouse, uh, that we would um, uphold the roles that he's called us to uh, as a faithful, godly men uh, lead the church in its teaching uh, and exercise Christ's authority through uh, teaching the word and that the women of the church um, you know, respond in humility and submission to that teaching and embrace their roles uh, that God has designed for them. So I'll close this there. Um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, this was uh, helpful to you all uh, to go through this passage. Uh, there's certainly, uh, you know, more that can be said, um, but uh, that's why you guys have discipleship group leaders is to continue these conversations. Uh, but I'm also available for anyone who wants to, to talk through this stuff. Uh, I don't know, I just, I'll just go ahead and, and wrap this uh, portion up uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, um, we're so thankful that you have given us your word. We're thankful that you've given us uh, to declare uh, calling to what uh, you desire your church um, to look like, uh, to be ordered. Uh, and we're thankful for the clarity of your word. Um, we're thankful that uh, you love us, that you care for us, and that you shepherd uh, your church with your word. Um, would we not lose sight of uh, um, the reality of the gospel, uh, its inward effect in our hearts, 
uh, wrought by your spirit and uh, would that uh, just show and be put on display uh, in each of our lives, uh, in our homes, in our workplaces, uh, and especially in our church. Uh, would we be faithful uh, to live up to your standards? And um, you know, as we seek to honor you, uh, we need your help and we need your guidance and your wisdom that comes from you. So we thank you for all these things and help us to bring you glory uh, in all these areas. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.